These are the generations of Shem. When Shem was 100 years old, he, father, he, fathers, he fathered Arpachshad. I'm going to stumble a few times, so get ready. Two years after the flood. And Shem lived after he fathered Arpachshad 500 years and had other sons and daughters. When Arpachshad had lived 35 years, he fathered Shelah. And Arpachshad lived after he fathered Shelah 403 years and had other sons and daughters. When Shelah had lived 30 years, he fathered Eber. And Shelah lived after he fathered Eber 403 years and had other sons and daughters. When Eber had lived 34 years, he fathered Peleg. And Eber lived after he fathered Peleg 430 years and had other sons and daughters. When Peleg had lived 30 years, he fathered Ru. And Peleg lived after he fathered Ru 209 years and had other sons and daughters. When Ru had lived 32 years, he fathered Sarag. And Ru lived after he fathered Sarag 207 years and had other sons and daughters. When Sarag had lived 30 years, he fathered Nahor. And Sarag lived after he fathered Nahor 200 years and had other sons and daughters. When Nahor lived 29 years, he fathered Terah. And Nahor lived after he fathered Terah 119 years and had other sons and daughters. When Terah had lived 70 years, he fathered Abram, Nahor, and Haran. This is God's word. You may be seated. So throughout this summer, we, we have been preaching on various lists that we find in Scripture. And finally, finally, we come to the dread of many a Bible reader, the genealogy. A genealogy passage does to a Bible reading plan what a javelin missile does to a T-72 tank. It, it blows it up. I am sure if I've asked for a, a show of hands, there's going to be at least a couple who, said that, who would say that I started a, an annual or a year-long, two-year-long Bible reading plan, and when I got to a certain genealogy, that's when my plan ended. Why did the Holy Spirit put so many genealogies in the Bible? Because, you know, there are many. We're taking one today, but there are many of them. Are they, these genealogies, like the rest of Scripture, profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness? This morning, I hope to show you that a genealogy can be engaging, relevant, and dare I say, maybe even inspiring and moving. Now, let's divide this message into two parts. First, let's look at this list of fathers and sons, and we'll consider its major themes, four major themes of fathers and sons. And then secondly, we'll look at the father and the son to whom this genealogy ultimately points. So fathers and sons, and then the father and the son. Now, what are the major themes here in this passage? Well, the first theme I'd like to, to draw your attention to is that in this list of fathers and sons, we see God's generational work. God's generational work. Now, few would dispute this observation that this passage is about generations. But many of us fail to apply it, because I think it's actually very, very practical. Now, let me explain what I mean. 
the God of the Bible insists on revealing himself as a generational God. He's the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That's how God introduces himself to us. God insists that he is a generational God, that he works across many generations. His promises almost never apply to a single generation only. Have you noticed that? That usually when God promises something, it has a particular meaning to one generation, but often, almost always, has other implications for other generations to come. His prophecies are typically fulfilled in multiple generations. There's often an immediate fulfillment in, in the lives of the people that this prophecy is given to, and there's multiple other fulfillments later on. His purposes unfold from generation to generation. And this deliberate inclusion of so many genealogies in the Bible confronts us with the reality that God has been active in previous generations just as he will remain active in the next one. Now, if this is who God is, if God is a generational God and he wants us to think of himself as a generational God, that means we too must think generationally. Local churches must not only strive for cultural and ethnic diversity, but also for age diversity. Every local church should have multiple generations present and engaged. No generation should be merely tolerated, but each generation should be celebrated and affirmed as having a meaningful role in the church. Now, you know that for many people, the way they choose a church, let's say you move into another town and you're looking at different churches, for many people, they choose a church on the basis of that church having people like me. So I go to a church, I look around, are there people like me? And if there's a lot of them, then maybe that's a good church for me. But what if a better principle is to look for a church where there are more people unlike you? And specifically across generational lines. What if you were to come to a church and you're looking, are there people younger than me, older than me, much older than me? much younger than me? Is there a span of generations present in this church? And when you see it, you say, okay, that's an that's a important factor for me as I make a decision what church to belong to. If we think generationally, we can resist the temptation of relevance, which usually involves compromise. Now, it has been presented as a wise strategy for a church to target a specific generation. But I don't think it's biblical. Not sure. I can go dust off my Doc Martens and pull out my baggy corduroy pants and a flannel shirt and then say, let's target our ministry towards Generation X. That's how we dressed in the 90s, by the way. <laughs> Unironically, too. We can do that, and we can say, let's just, everything we do, our ministries, our preaching, our music, let's just make sure that we do everything in the way that fits with the 90s generation, that really serves them, that really hits the notes that they like, that they like. Now, inevitably, if you do that, inevitably, we will overlook, ignore, downplay, or even reject out of hand 
certain truths that are just not palatable to that generation. I mean, that inevitably happens. Whenever a church decides that we're going to reach this generation, that means that we're going to adjust things to this generation. Without various generations present, my Gen X tendencies will go unchecked. And so I need other people around me so that you can correct me, you can give me a much fuller and richer understanding of Scripture in life. If we think generationally, we can discern our blind spots, because everybody has blind spots. Every generation, every culture, every family, every person has blind spots. And only in meaningful interaction with others from other cultures, other eras of history, can our blind spots be exposed and corrected. Now, one of my practices, as you may know already, when I prepare a sermon, I want to look at various commentaries. I want to look at commentaries written from different cultures and especially from different times. Because I know that naturally, if I look at Scripture, I read a passage, I am naturally going to interpret it in a certain way based on what's happening in my life, how I was brought up, my education, uh, a TV show I was watching earlier, you know, how much sleep I got. I mean, it's all going to affect it. Of course it will. So I need to check that obvious-to-me interpretation by comparing it with other people's interpretation. And the wider the variety of the Christian witness is, the better. And so it's good for me to see what a North African bishop said about the same text in the 400s. It's good. Or what somebody in Northern Europe said in the 1600s. That's helpful because it allows me to see what I may be missing. And I know I'm missing stuff. I know. And so, for example, in our Bible studies or in our small groups at Chatham, we want multiple generations present. We don't want everybody to be 36 in the same Bible study and reading the passage, right, and interpreting it exactly the same way. You need people in the 80s. You need a teenager. I mean, you need, hopefully, maybe a kid running around and, and sharing their insights into Scripture as well. You need that because then you can see what you may be missing. Uh, there's a book that was published in, in 2012 called Misreading Scripture with Western Eyes. And the point of the book was that we need to be careful uh, about the assumptions that we bring to the text coming out of our culture. Now, I, I, I have some issues with that book. Um, I think there's strong, strong parts to the book, and there's some weak parts. But I think the premise is right. I think the thesis of the book is right, that we inevitably bring our culture into the reading of the Bible. So the authors in that book share an experiment that they conducted. They had people from different cultures read the same passage of Scripture, uh, specifically the parable of the prodigal son. And what they found is that students that were uh, from Western cultures that read that same, that same passage completely missed the fact that the story begins with a famine. So Western students, everybody missed the fact that it begins with a famine. And most people from other countries started there. That was the first thing they noticed. Now, is it important? I think so. Because it tells us that we will naturally miss certain things, 
and we will naturally be drawn to certain other parts of every text. So we need to have a variety of generational views on Scripture. It's helpful. If we think generationally, we can keep in check the hubris of youth. Uh, The older I get, the more I realize that revolution is not always the best answer. And new is not always better. Now, sometimes revolution is called for. Sometimes something new is great, but not always. The energy of youth must be directed by the wisdom of the aged. And conversely, the skepticism and complacency of the aged must be challenged by the passion of the young. Now, you can't have one and and have the fullness within one generation. You just can't do it. You need the balance and counterbalance and the challenge and the response of multiple generations working through life together. If we think generationally, we can avoid the panic of the current catastrophe. Friends, our world tells us that today is the most important day, and the decision you're about to make is the most important decision in your life. And if you make the wrong decision right now, usually it's connected with a political cause, then the whole world is going to fall apart tomorrow. That's not true. Maybe once it can be true, I mean, but it's certainly not true every day. Not every election is the most important election in the world. And not every um, day is the last day before civilization falls apart. Not every crisis is the biggest one. Now, I'm not saying there are not, not any crises worthy of our attention. Of course there are. Lots of things that are wrong. Lots of things we need to be involved in. But if you think generationally, you have a little bit of distance. So, for example, I, I'm looking forward to a conversation with somebody from this church that remembers the 60s, because I want to know what happened in the 60s. My hunch is that there was a similar kind of panic and, um, and dread in the 60s and 70s that we may be experiencing now in our time. I think it would be helpful to find out how Christians dealt with it then, because it might help us to deal with it now. And so if you think generationally, if you just get out a little bit out of the immediate context, you realize that this, this long view that God has actually can produce patience and can assuage our fears. Um, God doesn't do everything in one single generation. He just doesn't do that. He works across generations. He builds on one generation's accomplishments to produce something else in the next generation or to correct a failure of a generation in the next generation. So we need to assume that kind of long historical generational view that God has. Now, it gives us patience. I think it it calms us. On the other hand, I think it also emphasizes the responsibility that we have in our own generation. It doesn't produce passivity, It actually produces wise engagement. So we can say, I am responsible for what is happening right now in my generation, and I want to leave a legacy for my children that is good and meaningful and healthy. Every generation has influence 
And yet, not any one generation gets to rule the whole history. Now, today in America, I'm encouraged to tell you and to learn that intergenerational friendships are most likely to happen in a church still today. So if you are looking for a friend of a different generation, you are most likely going to find them in a church, in a local, local church. So let's make sure it continues. Now, we've, we've been given a gift at Chatham. And the gift is that we have multiple generations actually pretty balanced in the church. And when I start worrying that we don't have enough older people, the Lord seemed to bring people from that generation. And when we start worrying about we don't have enough babies, the Lord brings baby. I, th- I think you've had a couple more babies since I've been gone. But that's a gift, you know, that's a gift from the Lord that he tells you, look, you can have multiple generations functioning in a healthy way in the same church. That's a gift. Now, we are to cherish it. We are to steward it. We are to protect it. I think it's important. It could be gone quickly. Now, that's my my first theme that I see is this, this generational work of God. The second theme is the forward momentum of grace, the forward momentum of grace. In God's generational work, He not only does something significant in each generation, but He advances His purposes from generation to generation. There's a, there's a progression, there's an advance of His work that happens. He builds on each previous generation and does something different, maybe something new uh, in the next. What we see as repetitive nature of genealogies, I think that's natural to read a list like that and say, well, it just repeats, right? It's just the same, same words with different numbers and names. But what if it's not repetitive in terms of boring? What if, it's, uh, what if it's the rhythm of music? What if it is the, the unfolding drama of a story? What if what God is saying in this genealogy and others is that He is working And he is doing something in each generation, and it is changing, and it is building, and there's something happening. It's a movement. What if we're to read genealogies not as sort of these these static, you know, kind of set in, in its record accounts, but something that is developing and growing that shows us momentum, movement, and in fact, advance of God's work? Now, let me show you one cool thing about this genealogy. Uh, one of the previous genealogies in Genesis 5 had a certain refrain to it. And the refrain was that was, and he died. He had children, he lived, and he died. Every person except for Enoch in that genealogy died. And so when you read a genealogy in, in Genesis 5, you walk away with thinking, this is movement, but this is movement towards death. Right? Every person, every generation is, is meeting the same end. But if you read this genealogy in Genesis 11, well, you see that refrain is absent. And in fact, this genealogy shows us movement towards life. Now, why is this important? Well, this follows the account of the Tower of Babel, right? Where it seems like everything is in disarray. And seems like God may be about to judge the world again. Of course, he had already done that with Noah. 
And so we see in this genealogy, we see grace. God is saying, no, 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 we're going to work with this broken humanity. We're going to redeem it. We're going to restore it. There's going to be life with every generation. I'm going to do something that will bring more life into humanity. It's, it's almost like it's a map here. It's almost like it's a progression of steps. Um, I don't know how, how much you've traveled, but if you go to uh, another major city, uh, you will find that one of the best ways to move around, to get around in, in, in a city, is through some sort of a subway or elevated train public transportation system. That's usually the fastest way in, in congested cities. The trick is that you don't know the system. And sometimes it's really hard to figure out, especially if the language is totally different. Now, the language is the same. Like, I remember I was in London many years ago, and, and the language is the same largely as, as here. And so, so it's easier. You can look at the map. You can look at the stops. You can get on the train, and they tell you to mind the gap, right? So you get on the train, and, and you look, and you can trace where the train is going. And you can see, okay, I'm here. So according to this, this template here, I'm here, the next stop is this one, I know I have to get off there, and you can sort of trace the movement, the momentum of the train. I think many genealogies are like that in Scripture, where you can trace the movement of God's grace. You can see that God is progressing humanity towards something better, towards life. For God's people, each generation is a stop towards the destination of life. As we think about the Christian history, the, the history of God's people, we are moving forward. There's an unfolding of history, and with every generation, we get closer and closer to the resolution and the renewal of the world. Now, if you are one of those who insist on living apart from God, then you probably belong better in Genesis 5 genealogy, where the end of every generation is, and he died, because death is inevitable unless you have access to the source of all life in God Himself. So what train are you on? Which one? Are you on a train that with every generation, with every stop, moves towards death or moving towards life? Third theme is God's covenant faithfulness. God's covenant faithfulness. Now, this genealogy bridges two covenants. So, if you look earlier in Genesis, there's the story of the flood and the promise that God makes to Noah when God says that I will not judge the world again with water. He is, again, it's grace after judgment. There's restoration. And then after this genealogy begins the story, in fact, in this genealogy begins the story of Abram, who becomes Abraham, to whom God makes another promise, and that promise is that through you, through your descendants, the whole world will be blessed. So, we, so in between, we have these, these generations, right? From Shem, who is one of the sons of Noah, to Abram and his siblings and his family. The Lord is actually working his promises from covenant to covenant, faithfully fulfilling his promises. And from generation to generation, the Lord shows himself to be faithful. Now, one of the ways to read and benefit from a biblical genealogy 
is to read it as a record of God's faithfulness. It's a record of God's faithfulness. You can look at the the stories of the generations. You can look at fathers and sons and mothers and daughters, and you can see how God has worked in each generation and how he's remained who he is, how his promises have come true or remained true. His purposes are being accomplished, God remaining unchanging in his character. Now, I think that could be quite exciting. When you come to a genealogy in the Bible and you say, look at God, through every generation he's remained faithful. Does it matter to you today? Of course it does, because we live in a particular generation. And we are raising the next generation, and there's another one on the horizon. And so to know that God is faithful, has been faithful, and will remain faithful to our children, to other people who are around us that we're investing in is incredibly encouraging and significant. Now, finally, the fourth and final theme I'd like us to consider. Of course, there are more. I'm sure I have four for today. The fourth theme is what one commentator uh, calls the scandal of peculiarity. The scandal of peculiarity. That commentator's name is Rusty Reno. And how that person became a Bible commentator is, is a mystery to me. If you name your child Rusty and his last name is Reno, you're not thinking theological studies for him, right? But Rusty Reno became a wonderful commentator on Scripture. And he calls this, this idea that God chooses one person through whom he decides to work for the, for the blessing of the world, in Abraham specifically, he calls it the scandal of peculiarity. Now, you see in this genealogy that this genealogy traces human history one generation at a time and one person at a time. Now, it says everywhere, it says that, and he had other sons and daughters, he had other children. But only one child, right, is mentioned as the person who produces the next generation in which another child will take on the leadership role and another and another. God only works through this narrow funnel, it seems, And of course, this pattern gets us to the next part of Genesis, which is focused on one man, Abram, who later is called Abraham, the son of Terah. Now look at Genesis 12, the beginning three verses. Now this follows our chapter, it follows our genealogy, and this is the sort of the official beginning of the story of Abraham. This is the call of Abraham. And this is what it says, Genesis 12. This is the call of Abraham. Now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you And him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. The promise is that through this one person, God would bring blessing and life to the whole world, to all the families of the earth, to the various generations in the world. Because God has decided to deal with humanity through one man. 
this one son of Terah would become the father of all God's people. His faith would usher blessings on the nations. Now, when you look at this genealogy, what's the value of it? Well, it helps us understand how God works and what God is like. It helps us see Him as a generational God and helps us think generationally in our own lives. It shows us that His purposes advance from one generation to the next with the goal of blessing and life for His people. It shows us that God remains faithful in every generation and from generation to generation. And it shows us that He chooses to channel His grace very specifically through one man. Now, I want to show you how all these themes converge in Jesus Christ, the Son of the Father. God wants us to relate to Him as our Father. Now, did you know that it's unique in religion? Did you know that in Islam, to say that Jesus is the Son of God is blasphemous? But in Christianity, it's a main idea that for us it's a core idea that God is our Father, that Jesus is His Son. It's unique to our faith that God has decided to reveal Himself to us not primarily as a king, not primarily as a judge, but primarily as a father. God wants us to be part of His family. He wants to adopt us as His children. Now, if you don't understand this, that we are to relate to God as children relate to their father, you are missing the essence of the relationship with God according to Scripture. That's the essence. That's the kind of close, deep, secure relationship that God is offering to all of us today. I, I was watching uh, BBC's Father Brown Mysteries, and I used to read a, I used to read a lot of Chesterton uh, mysteries as a kid and, and as a teenager, and I really liked them. And of course, I missed all the religious overtones. Now, Chesterton was a Christian, and there's a lot of Christian teaching that is, that is placed skillfully in those stories. And as a kid, of course, I missed all of that. But BBC also has missed most of it, so don't worry about that. I'm not the only one. But there's, there's a part that I think, I don't think it's in the story, but I think it is exactly what Father Brown would say in that situation. It's exactly what a pastor would say in a situation like that. And the situation is there was a distraught mother who had lost a child. And talking to Father Brown, she says, you know, what can you tell me? <laughs> What, in, what questions can you answer? Why would God do that? Um, you know, what's the meaning of the suffering? And, and Father Brown rightly, as, as any pastor should do, and I'm trying to remember, okay, any pastor should do says, I can't answer all your questions. I don't know the answers to some of these questions. But I can tell you that God knows what it's like to lose a child. Now, only a Christian can say that. Only a person who understands the gospel can say that and can say that God is here with you to love you and to care for you even in this awful loss 
that you have experienced. This is distinctly Christian. And it only makes sense if we see God as the Father and Jesus as the Son. How does God adopt us into that kind of relationship? How does God bring us into His family? How do we become His children? How do we become part of this new eternal generation that will not die? The biblical answer, the gospel answer, is that it happens through His Son, Jesus Christ, the Son of God and the Son of Man. Have you ever wondered why Jesus Himself presents Himself to the world as the Son of God and the Son of Man? Emphasizing that He has this relationship with God and He has this place in human history among the generations? It is not unusual It is not actually surprising if you've read the Bible to know that the New Testament starts with the genealogy of Jesus because Jesus inserts himself, God inserts himself into the generations, into the generational work of God. Jesus comes as one of us, born of a mother, right? Raised in a particular place, in a particular culture. And yet he comes as the Son of God, fully God and fully man bearing everything that God has and bringing it to us and giving it to us as a gift. God is not only the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He is the God and Father of Jesus Christ. And it's this relationship between the Father and the Son that actually reveals who God is to us. John 1.18 says, no one has ever seen God. Meaning, you can't know God on your own. You can't just go and look at Him. You can't just go and learn about Him. He has to be revealed. So no one has ever seen God. The only God, this is referring to Jesus, the only God who is at the Father's side has made Him known. How do you know God? You can't just go and find him. He has to come to you, and he comes to you as Jesus, the only God who is at the Father's side. Jesus comes out of that relationship, and he comes to reveal God to us as the Son of the Father. When God introduces Jesus to the world, you know, Jesus for for many years lived an obscure life, Lived with his family, worked a regular job, right? Hung out with his friends. And then there was the beginning of his public ministry. And that happened at baptism. So when Jesus was baptized for us, again, identifying with our sins, identifying with our suffering, he is baptized in the Jordan River by John the Baptist. And an amazing thing happens. God the Father introduces the Son to the world. And this is what happens. This is Matthew 3, verses 16 and 17. When Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. So the Father, when he sends Jesus to us, he wants us to see him as his beloved Son. Because out of that relationship, we will know who God is. Now, according to the Bible, we can only relate to God 
through his son, Jesus Christ. That's the scandal of peculiarity. We can only relate to God through Jesus Christ. 1 John 2, 23 says, No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. Just as through one man, Abraham, blessings were to flow into the world, through one God-man, Jesus Christ, life comes to the world. 1 Timothy 2, 5 and 6 says, For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. Proper time. In a particular generation, Jesus came as the only mediator, the only way to God, the only person through whom we can know God and be reconciled to Him. Why only through Christ? Because the momentum of grace has culminated in the coming of Jesus. Life has been reclaimed through the death and resurrection of the Son of God. The destination of God's train is the person and the work of Jesus Himself. The reason the New Testament starts, Matthew 1, starts with the genealogy of Jesus is to show us how God has worked through all those generations and how it all came to the head in Jesus. Because it's in Him that our sins are forgiven because of His death. It's in Him that we're given a new life. It's in Him that we're given a new hope. Only in Him, the scandal of peculiarity, only in this person, only in this way, can we have what God has promised through generations? It's in Christ that we see God's covenant faithfulness. 2 Corinthians 1.20 says, All the promises of God find their yes in Him. All the promises of God find their yes in Him. If you know Jesus, all the promises of God have been fulfilled. That's why it is through him that we utter our amen to God for his glory. A person who comes to Jesus realizes that here is the faithfulness of God. This is the culmination of the momentum of grace. This is what God has been doing through generations, and here he is. And I know him. And if I know him, I say amen. It is true to God for his glory. In Christ, a new covenant is made with God's people. And the essence of this new covenant is that those who believe in Christ are given new life, new nature, and new future by God. Those who trust Jesus, this person, this culmination of God's faithfulness, this embodiment of God's grace, those who trust Jesus are made new by the Spirit of God. We are regenerated. Never to be subject to death again. So are you part of this new covenant in Christ? Are you part of this new generation in Christ? A generation that is never going to die. 
a generation that will have all the fulfillment of all God's promises and will reign with Him forever.